If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 1, we're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 1, and we have a lengthy text this morning to get through. We're in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, 26. 1, 12 through 2, 26. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, 26, that would be wonderful. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are white and blue paperback Bibles uh, on the little table there in the back. We'd love for you to go grab one of those, and if you don't have a Bible, to take that one home and make it your own. That's our gift to you this morning. And uh, if you do have one of those Bibles, the text is on page 319, 319, page 319. That'll get you to Ecclesiastes 1, 12. Through 226. You received a bulletin when you walked in this morning. Inside that bulletin is a connect card. That's a good way for us to get to know you a little bit, get to know who you are and, and a little bit about you, and also a, a good way for us to get connected with you and, and get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. So please take a few moments to fill that out. All right, we are continuing in a, a sermon series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, we just had our first Sunday in Ecclesiastes last week, the first Sunday of the new year, and uh, it was a, a heavy dose of reality for all of us. Um, may have left feeling um, a little depressed, but Lord willing, by God's grace, a little more dependent on the triune God. And what we learned last week was we learned a little bit about uh, this uh, person identified as the preacher um, in Ecclesiastes. Uh, he's our, our kind of guide as we're walking through the book. We also learned about the, the gist of Ecclesiastes, the sort of big idea, the thesis of the book. And the thesis of the book is that all of life is hevel which we learned hevel is this Hebrew word that means like a mist, a, a vapor, smoke. Um, and it's this kind of concrete picture of, of what life is like. And we learned that, you know, that's a, actually a, a, a euphemism of sorts. It's a, an analogy for what life is like. We learned that life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. It's short and, and elusive. And, and uh, we actually aren't here for all that long of a time. It's, it's fleeting. We also learn that life is futile. That's what life is hevel means. That's what, that's what the author means when he says that all is hevel. Life is futile and that there's, there's no gain or significance in it all. And we also learn that life is frustrating. Life is, is very, very frustrating. It's tremendously frustrating just by being in it. So we learned last week as we looked at the opening of this book in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. And now we are going to continue walking through the book in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, 26. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God and King. I, the preacher, have been king over, Jerus or over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 
and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced, I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in his days... In the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you bless our time together this morning in your word? Would you 
open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts so that we might hear you, see Christ, and receive the truth of your word with faith and understanding. Lord, we ask these things for your glory, for our good. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start by asking a question. What is it in your life that you are seeking ultimate meaning in? What are you seeking ultimate significance in? What what are you what are you looking to in order to satisfy the deep longing you possess in your soul for purpose and meaning and significance? With what are you seeking to satisfy that deep ache in your soul? Because here's the thing, it's, it's there. It's, it's there, and you know it's there. You long for, you ache for, you, you, you long for something in your life to make all the monotony and hardship in life worth it, yeah? And if we're honest, we know that that ache, that longing, that hunger and thirst is something that we can't help but seek to satisfy. It's a vacuum that just can't stay empty. We have to, we must, we need to fill it with something. There's a well-known atheist and and now deceased writer David Foster Wallace once said, he said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. And he's right, because at the end of the day, you're going to seek to tap real meaning and significance from something. You're going to look to something or someone to give you ultimate significance, the, the, the satisfaction for which your soul so longs for and desires. At the end of the day, you're going to, he, he says, you're going to worship something. That's what Wallace says. He says, you're going to worship something. You're, you're going to find your primary identity in something. Something is going to be at the very center of your life. The question is, what is it? Now, the preacher knew and experienced this, and he discerned that this is this, this kind of universal human experience. We long for something to give us ultimate significance and satisfaction in this life. And so he conducted a little experiment. He sought to derive meaning and significance. He sought to satisfy this longing from several different sources. One's actually common to the human experience, and, and, and he looked to them to give him the significance and satisfaction for which his soul so longed for and desired. Now, the first thing he tried in his search for significance was, was he, he calls it wisdom and knowledge, what we might call education. Okay, but beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over, Jeru- over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. You see, he sought to grow in knowledge and understanding. He was a, a kind of philosopher, you see. And he wasn't just your average kind of undergrad who took a philosophy class. He was, he was like brilliant. He was really actually very educated. He, he was brilliant. In verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all, all 
who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He's saying, I tried to find true and real gain, true and real significance in this life by pursuing an education, by pursuing knowledge about the world and about the way that it all works. I, and of course, you know, as 21st century Westerners, we, we value education, don't we? We value education and knowledge. I mean, largely because our culture and, and Western societies as a, as a whole have valued education and research and knowledge, we live in a world with, I mean, magnificent scientific discoveries and wonderful inventions that benefit humanity and have made life generally better. We live in a world with antibiotics, praise God. We live in a world with, with hand soap. That's a, that's a wonderful invention, brilliant. We live in a world with, with amazing benefits and creature comforts, largely because Western culture so valued education and knowledge and research. Of course, it's not just Western culture. For us, particularly as Christians, we value education and knowledge, right? In fact, many argue rather convincingly that the whole reason the, the Western world uh, is, has this, this value of science and philosophy and education and knowledge and, and all the rest of it is because of a, a Christian influence on Western society. From the very beginning, our, our faith has professed that this world was created and ordered by God. And therefore, the world has a particular design and order that is observable and intelligible. This is God's world, and therefore, we ought to and can study it and observe it and learn about it and steward it all for His glory and for the good of humanity. And not only that, but just life experience would tell us that, that education is a, a largely positive learning knowledge. These are largely positive and helpful things. They benefit those who possess it. Now, generally speaking, if you're a wise and learned person, life will likely go better for you. You know, just for example, if you've learned to do basic math, and if you've learned how to budget your money and, and know how to spend wisely, then you might be more likely to avoid crippling debt and to avoid financial struggles that might very well befall those who didn't learn to do those things. And for that reason, the preacher, he does communicate the importance of wisdom and knowledge and education for someone living in a fallen world. He says in chapter 2.13, I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. See, there's some benefit to wisdom, knowledge, and education. Yet with all that said, there is a question regarding the, the kind of real gain and significance of it all. In a fallen world, at, at the end of the day, wisdom and knowledge and education, they're still hevel, he says. If knowledge and education were really the answer to what truly deep down plagues us as human beings, then college campuses would be outposts of human flourishing, wouldn't they? If all we needed was more wisdom, more knowledge, more schooling, then, then college campuses would be places wherein people experience the satisfaction, satisfaction and significance for which we all so long for and desire. But have you been on a college campus? Horrible places most of the time. 
showing the apex of human depravity in some ways. In fact, the, the preacher, he goes as far to say that, that knowledge and education actually, actually makes some things worse. He says, starting in chapter 117, and, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You see, it seems that he also found that this increasing knowledge and wisdom led to greater frustration and sadness in life. Why? He says in verses 14 and 15, he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. He says, after learning all that I learned and after observing all that I observed, after receiving all this knowledge and wisdom and education about the world, this is what I found. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, after receiving all this knowledge and wisdom and education, I still found that there was much that I could not improve or make right. There's still so much wrong with the world and with this life that education can and never will fix. Poverty, disease, loneliness, mental illness, broken families, addiction, things like these. With all of our education and all the knowledge we possess as a society, we still can't improve or eradicate all that ails us, can we? may learn more about it, but what is crooked cannot be made straight. And of course, that's to say nothing about the biggest problem we face, that of death. And the preacher, he's, he's aware of this. In fact, he says that death is actually the great equalizer of both the educated wise and the uneducated fool. He says in chapter 215, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity, for of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. So you see increasing in knowledge and wisdom, seeking education, while in some ways valuable, it actually doesn't answer that which plagues us as human beings. It doesn't actually give us the gain, the significance, the satisfaction for which we so long. And so the preacher moves on. Next, he, exper- he experiments with, with pleasure. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Verse 2 shows that he tried laughter. Part of his, his experiment with pleasure. He tried laughter. He tried comedy. He tried watching YouTube clips of cats doing funny things. There, I mean, actually, like he was loaded. He had all sorts of cash money. And so he could afford to do more than that. He brought Jim Gaffigan into his palace, and, and Jim Gaffigan performed some stand up routines for him. I'm sure he enjoyed some good times of laughter with family and friends. And of course, there's nothing wrong with laughter, right? Old folk 
wisdom would actually tell us that laughter in some ways is, is good for the soul. And not just folk wisdom, I mean, there are modern studies that have been shown that there's connection with laughter and mental and physical health. Laughter brings good emotional changes to your, your body and physical changes to your body. It's, it's been shown to strengthen your immune system. It's been shown to uh, lower stress hormones and ease anxiety and tension, relieve stress, strengthen relationships. And, and one study uh, in, in Europe actually showed that there could be a connection between laughter and, and length of life. Laughter is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful gift. The preacher says of laughter, I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? See, because even though laughter is fun and it adds some benefit to our lives, it can actually, it can't actually truly and fully heal us, can it? Not everything in life is a laughing matter. There's some things in life that you're going to face that are not funny. Therefore, laughter, it doesn't last. It's short-lived. Might laugh with a friend for a few minutes or laugh for an hour at a Netflix comedy special, but then it comes to an end and you're faced with the mundanity and madness of life again. And even in the midst of laughter, you don't experience pure joy and bliss. You know this, Proverbs 14, 13 says, even in the midst of laughter, the heart may ache. There's never pure joy or bliss, even in laughter. So laughter's out. So he moves on to another pleasure, wine. He says, for all you Baptists in here, he's not talking about grape juice, all right? talking about strong drink. And what may make some of you even a little more uncomfortable is this. He's, he's not wrong to look for pleasure in wine. Wine is pleasurable. Scripture says so. In the Bible, wine is seen as, as a sign of blessing and joy, but even more than that, it's not just a sign of blessing and joy. It, the Bible actually says it brings joy. It brings pleasure. Psalm 104, 15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. Of course, Scripture also cautions against the misuse or overuse of wine as well. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink, a brawler, and whoever, whoever is led astray by it is not wise. But the preacher, he's not misusing or overusing wine. He's using it in, in wise moderation, still holding on to his wisdom. He says in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He's using wine wisely. He wasn't out of control. His heart was still guiding him with wisdom, that he might actually discern whether or not the, the proper use of the pleasure of wine brought satisfaction to his soul. And we might just consider this a little more broadly, not just considering wine, but food and drink, as he goes on to talk about later in chapter 2. All good food, all good drink. Maybe you're a bourbon drinker. God bless you. Maybe you're a, a craft beer fanatic. Maybe you're a foodie, you know. That's the thing that millennials do. Maybe you're a, a coffee connoisseur. Or maybe you are a drunkard, just straight up a drunkard and a glutton or, or, or what have you. Whatever it is, you're trying your hand at pleasure in food and drink. And at the end, you're going to find what the preacher found. And that's this, it's Hevel. It may be fun and pleasurable for a moment, but it's a passing pleasure, it's a fleeting felicity, and then it's gone. 
All the money and time you spend on the pleasure of food and drink ends up digested and in the sewer. So wine is out too. We could go on. I mean, the preacher mentions sex, I, I think. It, it's, it's not exactly all that blatant, but when he claims to have had many concubines, sex is another common road in the search for pleasure. However, if we're indeed going to see this preacher as King Solomon, you know, we could say that few, if any, have ever experienced it on the scale that Solomon did. Thousands of sexual partners. But the same fact remains. It's fleeting. It's hevel. Sinclair Ferguson puts, he says, pleasure seekers can never be pleasure keepers. The pleasures pass you by and pass away. It's all hevel. So he moves on in his search for pleasure to seek significance and satisfaction through other means. Not just laughter and wine, but next we see him move on to accomplishments, just merely a, another way of seeking pleasure. We see in verses 4 to 9, he just kind of lists off this, the number of accomplishments he achieved and possessions he gathered through his toil and work as a king. And it's interesting because this is actually like a, it's similar to other writings from kings uh, in, in those days. It's common for a king to just kind of make a, a sort, it's sort of like a resume, just listing out all the possessions and all their accomplishments they achieved through their work, all in order to show like how great and how powerful and magnificent of a king they were. But you see the preacher here is doing that in kind of a, a morbid way, kind of a way that mocks that, that practice and shows the emptiness of such feats. Starting in verse 4, he says, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the force of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and slaves who were born in my house. You see, the preacher devoted himself to work and toil that he found personally pleasurable. And what's more was he was very good at it. He was very successful. I mean, it helps that he was loaded that allowed him to pretty much devote himself to whatever kind of work he wanted. And he wanted to build houses and plant vineyards, maybe so that he could keep drinking that wine that we talked about. He also designed gardens and parks. He planted diverse kinds of trees and plants, had exotic fruit trees. He made pools to water his forest. He had a massive team of, of servants and slaves to carry out all of this. He was uber successful and accomplished in his work. And yet, as you're expecting, he still comes to the very depressing conclusion that all of his work and all of his, his toil and all of his accomplishments are not actually satisfying. They still don't give him the sense of significance for which he so longs. They still don't bring any real gain to his life concludes in, in verse 11. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's all hevel, he says. It's all hevel. Of course, he's, he's not unique in this experience. You know, often when people become super accomplished in their work and at the top of their game, they still come up empty, right? It's often people at the top who, when they reach the top, they realize there's nothing up there, and they let all the rest of us know that. I watched a, a Tom Brady interview not too long ago. 
where he communicated this very same idea. He's speaking with this 60 Minutes interviewer, Steve Croft, and, and Brady says to him, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? To this, Steve Croft says, what's the answer? In the sort of tone of desperation, Brady responds by saying, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And similarly, Kevin Durant, after he won championship with the Golden State Warriors, beat LeBron James. Come on. He's being interviewed. And along the same lines as Brady, he says, after winning that championship last season, I learned much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. Here's the thing. The highs that such accomplishments bring are short-lived, like wine, like laughter, like all the rest of it. It's fleeting. It may be fun for a few, but then it passes right by you. And in all reality, it's all going to be forgotten anyways. Like, I will give you a dollar if any of you can tell me who Milo of Croton is, or Leonidas of Rhodes. No one. No one cares. They were very famous, praised athletes in Greece. Very accomplished athletes, praised and famed in their day for their feats and their athletic abilities and their accomplishments in Greek athletic competitions, and no one knows who they are. No one cares. In a hundred years, maybe less, no one will know who Tom Brady is or Kevin Durant. And here's the thing, you and your work and your accomplishments are even more forgetful than theirs. You may be pretty good at your job. You may be pretty pleased with your accomplishments, but if history is going to forget Tom Brady, history is definitely going to forget you. You're going to waste away and decay in the ground, forgotten and unknown. I give you two to three generations before people forget you ever even existed. Before your family even forgets that you existed. I couldn't tell you my great-great-grandfather's name. I couldn't tell you. You are going to be forgotten. You're going to decay in the ground, and all of your accomplishments and work and toil, it's all hevel. It's going to be forgotten. So again, like education, like pleasure, it comes up empty. Great. So how about possessions? Maybe with all of our work and toil, we can get some money, Maybe that will satisfy, or maybe, even if money doesn't do it, maybe we can use money to, to buy some stuff that will give us significance and satisfaction. The preacher tried that too. Listen to what he says. He's just picking it back up in verse 7. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Rather, he gathered great possessions, herds, and flocks, more than anyone in Jerusalem before him. He had singers and concubines. He had it all. And this, it may be particularly important for us to consider because we live in a time and place wherein we are routinely promised that more stuff will satisfy our hearts. The prophets of consumerism routinely tell us that the significance for which we so long will be found in stuff. It's a promise of every car commercial. It's the promise of, of every Christmas catalog. It's the promise of every billboard and Facebook ad. If you have clothes like this, if you have a car like this, if you lived in a home like this, if you had the right amount of money, the right stuff, you'll finally have the good life and be happy. Finally be satisfied. And I don't, I don't know, maybe I don't even really need to convince you of this one. Maybe you already know this by experience. Getting the car, getting the, the house, getting the clothes, Getting the phone and the computer and all the rest of it, it doesn't actually deliver. It's just more emptiness. And so again, the the preacher asks us to consider possessions in light of our impending and certain death. He says in verse 18 through 23 that the fruit of our labors, the fruit of our work, the fruit of our sleepless nights and early mornings, the possessions we acquire from it all, they're actually going to go to someone else who didn't even work for them when we die. And who knows whether they're going to be wise or foolish. Perhaps they'll treat all of the possessions for which we labored disdainfully or carelessly. And really, who cares? Because we won't even be around to enjoy them anyways. It's all hevel. The wisdom and education, the pleasure and possessions, the accomplishments and acquisitions, it's all fleeting, it's all futile. It doesn't give lasting significance or satisfaction. And so the preacher concludes in verses 17 and 18 that he hates life. (laughs) He hates all of his toil. Such is the logical conclusion of looking for lasting significance and satisfaction in these fleeting entities and aspects that belong to life in this fallen world under the sun. I hate life. Which may seem to go a little too far for us. Of course, according to Jesus, there's a sanctified way to hate life. He actually tells us in Luke 14, 26, that hating life is necessary for becoming a disciple. See, part of becoming a follower of Jesus involves hating life because you recognize that there's no gain in all this stuff. where Where then do we look for significance and satisfaction? You have to lift your eyes to something beyond life under the sun. You have to look at what exists beyond life under the sun. You have to look to the God of heaven who reigns over it all, who created it all, and who created you for the sake of life with him. It's in him and in him alone that your search for significance finds its satisfaction. As Dutch theologian Herman Bobink once said, man is an enigma whose only solution can be found in God. 
always fond of quoting St. Augustine here as well. St. Augustine says in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You see, when we search for significance and satisfaction and education and pleasure and accomplishments and possessions and all the rest of it, we're actually searching for what only God can give us. Which brings us back to that David Foster Wallace quote. Let's revisit that. Listen to the the kind of full thing he says here. He says, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And we could go on. Worship pleasure. You'll always be miserable, searching for the next high, the next buzz, the next thing, only to find that none of it lasts and none of it was as good as you were promised. Worship accomplishment and you'll never measure up because there's always someone who will do it better than you and you'll find yourself getting less and less productive with age and more and more disappointed with the way your life is turning out and then you die and you're forgotten. It's Do you get the picture? It's Hevel. But do you see, those gods, pleasure and possessions and all the rest of it, the the God of Christianity is not like that. You, You know, David Foster Wallace, he was right. These gods of intellect and pleasure and power and money and all the rest of it, these things will eat you alive. They will consume you because Constantly, they're calling you to sacrifice self on their altars without any, giving you anything of themselves, giving you anything of lasting significance. But the God of Christianity is, is different. He doesn't just ask you to give yourself. He doesn't just ask you to sacrifice yourself. He sacrificed himself for you. He stepped into this life of heaven. And he went to the cross for your sake so that you would be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to him, reconciled to him in whom your search for significance and satisfaction ends. So that you would be reconciled to him and so that you would have that rest that your restless heart so desires, so that you would possess him, so that you would know him, so that you would be his and he would be yours forever. Because it's in knowing him and possessing him and belonging to him that you find the significance and satisfaction for which your soul desires. He gave himself on the cross so that he might give himself to you. And now, don't get me wrong. Knowing God and possessing Christ, it doesn't make life in this fallen world any less heavy. The preacher, he goes on to 
confess that life is still hevel at the very last. Notice what he says, though, in verses 24 to 26. He says that there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Notice that the preacher here, he can actually find enjoyment in his eating and drinking and toil when he recognizes that these things are gifts from God. When he recognizes that these things are not ends in and of themselves, they're not that from which you are supposed to tap real meaning and significance from. They're not where you're supposed to find your ultimate satisfaction. Instead, they're gifts pointing you to the giver, the one from whom you will find that for which your soul longs and aches. And, and you see, when you look to him for significance and satisfaction, you can actually enjoy the, the education. You can actually enjoy the wisdom and knowledge, the pleasure and laughter and wine. You can actually enjoy the possessions and sex and accomplishments. You can enjoy them for what they are. Temporary fleeting gifts that are meant to serve as escorts into finding true joy and pleasure in the one who gives these gifts and who gave himself for us on the cross. And even when these gifts, the work and education and pleasure and possessions, even when they seem to cause you more frustration than joy, you can be content that God still has a plan and your days of frustration have an expiration date. There, even when you lose these things, even when you lose these gifts, as we often do in a fallen world, when you lose the job or when your accomplishments slip through your fingers when the pleasures are few, when the possessions are destroyed by moth and rest or taken by thieves. When that happens, you you may be disappointed. But if you're looking to the all-satisfying God of heaven, you won't be devastated because your identity isn't wrapped up in them. Your significance isn't wrapped up in them. Your significance is found in the God who never changes and who will never leave you or forsake you and who is ultimately preparing for you a world wherein the pleasures will never end. And so you see, my friends, we must not look to God's gifts for our ultimate significance and satisfaction, but to Him. He is where you'll find what you're looking for. He is the God for which you so long for and ache for. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word on our hearts and would you remind us that your son has given himself for us that we might eat and drink and find enjoyment in him as we come to the table. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.